Hey, everybody, good to see you. That's what we say when we start youth group. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 25. And in these narrative passages, there is a lot of reading that you really need to be doing at the same time because we can't read everything all over again. So have those Bibles open. We'll make verse references on the screen, and then you can see exactly what I'm talking about as we go through these points. As we know, we're in this series on 1 Samuel, and the context is, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of battle going on. Either it's a battle on the outside or it's a battle on the inside. And these battles David is experiencing, Saul is experiencing, among others. And we want to look at that a little more carefully today. In the specific context, chapter before last week's sermon, 24, and chapter 25 this week, and chapter 26 kind of go together. And here's some points that make them go together. First of all, we know that David did not kill Saul because he was the anointed. And he probably didn't want to be a bad example of killing anointed people since he was anointed as well. And then he, he, this week he decides that he does want to kill somebody who isn't anointed. And it's just like, okay, is that okay? Uh, and then next week it's back to I didn't kill Saul because he's anointed. We are anointed in ways as well. If you do a study of the Old Testament, you'll find that every Old Testament leader is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that serves in combination with the term anointed. In the New Testament, we see that we are, as believers, when we accept Christ as our Savior, that is, when we come before God and say, please forgive me, uh, thank you for dying, sending your son to die on the cross for our sin, uh, Lord, accept me, please. Then, then the Holy Spirit, who's on the outside trying to get our attention, comes on the inside. We are anointed to be representatives of the second point that ties together, righteousness. Righteousness appears three times in the book of Samuel. First, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, where Samuel gathers all the people together, and he says, let's remember the righteousness of God that he has done among us. And, and he ties it together to the previous generations. And his point is, now it's our duty to pick up the righteousness that of God that has been passed to us and represent God to the next generation. And then we also have righteousness the other two times in chapter 24 and in chapter 25. So these three chapters are all about doing what's right in God's eyes instead of doing what's right in our own eyes. And that righteousness comes not from ourselves, but comes from God. We'll see that a little more carefully in a minute. Next, the third area uh, that hinges or ties it all together is the, the idea of good and evil, which is, comes back to righteousness as well. We are anointed to do righteousness. Righteousness is, is what this passage is all about. And we see it turning one direction or the other, we're made, that, that the characters have to make a choice. Will they represent unrighteousness, self-righteousness, or God's righteousness? And these are the same choices that we have. And finally, the context tells us that God is the main character, uh, that God is the one who is at work, and he is using his people to accomplish his will for his purposes. 
Our takeaway today is our battles belong to the Lord when righteousness from the Lord defines victory that is the Lord's. Let's open in prayer. Father God, we pray that you would speak through your word. Help us to hear what you need to teach us today. Each one of us here is experiencing a different battle in one thing or another. Maybe it's an external battle. Maybe it's an internal one. Lord, I pray that we would receive knowledge by your spirit for how to engage in the battles that ultimately are yours. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So in 1 Samuel chapter 25, the first verse, it's like a real downer. Samuel dies. Okay. Uh, it, it, this is a good way to start the story. But it begs the question, Samuel was the arbiter of righteousness. He was the, the one who taught people, uh, like he did in chapter 12, how to live out God's righteousness. He was the one that pointed Saul, pointed David to righteousness. And now he's gone. And that leaves us with the question, who will be the next person to pick up the distribution or the communication of righteousness or the example of righteousness to the next generation because Samuel's gone. And here we have a story where, where uh, right before a history, by the way, um, right before Samuel, or David decided not to take the law into his own hands, not to make his own way. And now Samuel is gone and we see David faltering. David starts to think that maybe this righteousness can be taken on his own hand. Maybe he will accomplish God's righteousness. How is this different from the righteousness that Saul did on his own? Well, we should be looking for that answer to that question today. So there are three things that we will hear today that'll help us to define how, is, how do we define victory? And these words are the governor, the voice, and the sovereign. Let's start with the governor. The governor, God's righteousness, must define our battles. So if you're in a battle today, point number one, the governor, God's righteousness, must define our battles. Now, governor, I'm using a different word here uh, than the ruling, the, the governor. I'm talking about a governor like that, that regulates an engine. For example, when we were down in Dallas and we decided that we would start ministry and we moved up to Ohio, we, we rented a rider pickup truck. And it wasn't long before we realized in the mountains of coming into Arkansas and Tennessee that this pickup, not this, this rider truck with, with all our stuff in it, had a governor on it. And we would be going down the hill and it's like, and you're like, you're just like leaning forward because it's holding you back. And then you start to go up the next hill and you're like trying to put the, the pedal down because you can see the hill out in front of you. And the governor is like, no, you're not going to go over the speed limit. Uh, you're 20 years old and you don't know what you're doing. That's why we put these governors on here. And uh, so uh, I wasn't 20. I was like 20. Seven, so you know, I, I knew what I was doing, uh, and uh, so we head up the mountain, and it's just like, uh, 
and it's like 45 miles an hour. I'm a hazard to everybody around me because of this governor. Uh, and so my dad and I at the next rest area decided we would pop the hood and uh, disengage the governor. Uh, I'll tell you more about that at the end. Uh, so today we're going to look at this as a as a, uh, like a storyline, but we're gonna examine the characters. And in order to keep you in, in rhythm, we're gonna put the storyline points up on the screen, and then it'll have the passages that I will be referencing. So the first storyline point is that there is a polite request. David, in verses one through eight, goes, uh, he's out in the wilderness, his people are hungry, and he decides to send some young men to make a polite request to Nabal to uh, send us some food. We, we could use some food. And, uh, and we find out who Nabal, Nabal is and who his wife is. And we find a little bit about their character. Nabal is harsh and he is badly behaved. He is a Calebite, which means he's a relative of David. And uh, Abigail is discerning and beautiful. Okay, right away, you know, like, this is going to be good. The idiot and the beauty, uh, the, you know. Uh, so what, what's going to happen here? And so the, you have them, and you have David, who is in exile. He was in the king's court. Now he isn't. He was anointed to be king, but he is not yet. And he has followers. He's out in the wilderness. He's known by everyone. And Saul's chasing him around with a 3,000-man posse to kill him. And that's what happened in the, in the previous chapter. And now David's like, I could use some food. And he sends for help. And Nabal, he sends for this help on the basis of hospitality culture and on the basis of the fact that he's a relative. And, uh, and he says, we'll, sends his young men to Nabal and he says, please give us something to eat with all this polite language. You see it there in verses 5 and 6. And then he ends with, uh, give this to your son, David. So the reference to the fact that he is part of the, the family. And so this governor of righteousness uh, comes up right away because we, we, if you're reading this with Western eyes, you might be saying, okay, uh, David says, hey, I've been out in the wilderness. Your people have been out there with your 3,000 sheep and all the other stuff, and we haven't eaten one of them. And, uh, and all, of, uh, all of your people can attest to this. And, and so he says, uh, uh, then can you give something to me? So with Western eyes, we might say, well, this is a lesson in how to run a, a, a protection racket. Um, you protect out here, and then you come in and you force this guy uh, to, to give you uh, sheep or, or food uh, because uh, he sends his people back out, and, and you're going to take it if he doesn't. Um, but this is not at all what's happening because David is now God's righteous representative. He is not going through the countryside pillaging and, and making, providing for his army. He's hiring his people out. They're making polite requests. He doesn't have the privilege that Paul or Saul has to go around and exercise his kingly right to ask for food for his 3,000-man army. So he comes to Nabal and he has this request. And so he does this because he is God's representative of righteousness. He is doing the right thing. 
Also, when we are doing the right thing, the next generation is watching. In this passage, the character that represents or the characters is young men. And some translations call that men. I don't know why, because the Hebrew word na'an means like adolescent. So we're talking like teen at the oldest, maybe a college age student. So David sends his young men uh, and, and Nabal's young men, same word, same age category. They're, uh, they're like, okay, uh, there's David's young men. We know each other from out in the wilderness. And, uh, and so we know that the next generation is watching. These aren't lieutenants. These are privates. Uh, these are the lowest level. Level of David's men and, and representatives, their servants, their attendants. And so righteousness matters because the next generation is always watching. In a world with relative righteousness, with relative truth, the next generation is asking, what is righteousness? And we need to say it's not righteousness that is what is right in my own eyes. It is what is right in God's eyes. And that was where we came out of the book of Judges, where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And Samuel stands up to that, and he's saying we're going to take a new path. And now David is representing that path. Next, we have the politics of personal insult. Nabal... Here's David's men. They come to him with all the polite request, and he's saying, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? This, this isn't just like, I don't know who you are, so how am I? No, he knows who David is. Everybody knows who David is. He's the guy who Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. In the earlier chapter, the kings of other, other regions know who David is. Everybody knows who David is. Everybody knows what Saul is doing, marching around with these 3,000 people looking for David and why he's looking for David. And the chapter before says uh, that that Saul recognizes David as the anointed one, and Saul, uh, the anointed next king, and Saul says, when you come into your reign, please don't kill my family. And, and uh, so Saul knows who he is, and everybody knows he's anointed to be king. And he's like, who are you? Who, who's David anyway? And who's the son of Jesse? So he's, he's, he could have just said, hey, David, I can't do anything. There's 3,000 men running around. They might decide to run around and and uh, do me harm too, but no. He, he, he sticks with personal in, insult, and this is political. He is in Saul's camp, and he, he wants to, to have power, and power is the guy with 3,000 people, not, not 3,000 men, not the guy with 600. So he insults him, and this is no different than a slap in the face, and we know so because of how David reacts. Uh, when David hears this, he is triggered big time. Uh, forget the anointed, forget their righteousness, forget everything. All he sees is red and rage, and he wants to bring a, a solution to this insult problem that is a public insult, and uh, he tells his men, 400 of the 600, put on your swords, we're going to do business. 
and uh, we're going we're gonna to show this man a thing or two. I will take righteousness into my hands. It will be me serving God to do God's will. Well, let's see. What, does he really mean that? So Nabal's young men uh, then see uh, what's going on. They're like, Nabal, you've just poked a lion. This guy isn't in the cage. This guy's like in, you know, like you're on a safari in Africa and you walk up and you stab a lion. What do you think is going to happen? And, and so they know David is strong. They know these guys are lethal. And, and so the young men, they, they, what do they do? Well, they go to Abigail, not to Nabal. And they say that Nabal uh, is worthless uh, because if we were to take this to him, it, it would just be like in one ear and out the other. But instead, they go to Abigail. Why do they go to Abigail? Because they trust in her as the righteous representative. They know that she will do what's right, even though her husband will not. And so these young men come in, and uh, they, uh, they say, we're in trouble. And uh, so in this case, whose example will the next generation follow? The young men are split. Nabal's young men follow Abigail, and David's young men come back to him. And then all the older men, too, uh, they put on their swords, and they're ready to do battle. So... There's something tough going on here. Righteousness matters, and we need to be an example to the next generation. But what righteousness will the next generation follow? They love Abigail, and they love David, and they're ready to follow both of them, one in the path of righteousness, the other one in the path of unrighteousness. So what more do we need? There has to be something more. When you are in a situation at work, at home, with family, and you know what the right thing to do is, you know and you, you practice the right thing and you regularly do the right thing, but when you're, you are triggered, when somebody pushes your button, when somebody insults you on a subject that you don't have the bandwidth to handle, what do you do? How do, you, how do you do the right thing when, when all you see is red? And, and so that brings us to the next point. The voice of God's people reminds us that our battles are the Lord's. So we might know what to do, but if you don't have God's people in your life reminding you of what's most important, reminding you that the battle is the Lord, reminding you that and, and, and often we're blind in these situations. We think that we're doing the righteous thing. David thought he was doing the righteous thing. In verse 22, he even says, he even gives credit to God. So let's see what happens here. First, enter the peacemaker. Abigail moves out. She acts. She's decisive. She is ready to do the right thing, and, it, and she, doesn't, she does it by habit. She is emotionally stable. David is emotionally compromised. That 
in our parenting classes is how you know when you're parenting the next generation well and when you're not. You evaluate yourself on the basis of your understanding of your emotional state at the time that the kid is coming at you. And on some subjects, you can handle it just fine. No problem. You can kind of like, <laughs> I remember I did the same thing. But in other subjects, it's like, bam! And they're like, they know exactly where your hypocrisy is. They know exactly what unrighteous thing you've done. And they will step into it and do exactly as you have done. And you've got nothing to say. And, and, and not only that, but all you're seeing is red. So what do you do? What do you do in that situation? Well, look for the voice of God's people. Abigail can move forward because she's not emotionally compromised. She is decisive. She knows exactly and discerning. She knows this isn't going to be good. She listens to the young men and trusts their judgment. And then she loads up these donkeys and, and, all, and puts all this food together. And then she's on her way to see David. And, and so we see the peacemaker uh, coming out. Uh, in youth group, we've been doing the Beatitudes, and one of the Beatitudes is, blessed is, are the peacemakers. Uh, and, and we were talking about that, and, and we noted that it's really harder to be a peacemaker than you think. Uh, because when you're stepping out in between two people who are, are butting heads. So uh, it's almost like Nabal is functioning in his unrighteousness, or maybe it's self-righteousness, and David's all up in his self-righteousness, and you're going to get between these two people who think they're doing right, and, and you're going to like d d um, make this disengage and, and, and get these people to see reason? How, how do you do that? Well, if you're wondering, there's a primer on how to do it. Abigail demonstrates how to do it. She, she then is the voice of a sister reminding a brother that this battle is the Lord's and the victory will only come when you walk in the righteousness that comes only from God, that is enabled only by God's Spirit, is not enabled by our, our self-will or our self-power, we will only represent God when we're representing what, with what God gives us. And that is righteousness. We call that imputed righteousness. Where we pick up on this is the book of Romans uh, 3, the most. Right in Romans 3, you know that famous passage, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, right before that, it says there is none righteous. And then righteousness is of God. Righteousness is, uh, is of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Righteousness is of God. If you want to know what is the right thing to do, then we come to the word of God we come and we listen to God's people and we say, what is the right th thing to do? Not in my own eyes, not in, in my emotional state, that whatever I'm in, but before God in prayer saying, God, this battle is yours and you need to show me the right path because I, I, I don't have it. it it's, it's not here and I'm ready to make a, a huge mistake. And so Abigail then, uh, you'll see in, in verse 23, when Abigail saw David, 
she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David. Notice in verse 22, she, he, uh, David says uh, in 21, Surely in vain I've guarded all these people, and I'm about ready to do God's justice uh, for God on his enemies. And he's all like in a, in a, a snit about whatever, you know. And uh, he's marching down there with his men, and Abigail comes. And what does she do? She's humble before him. A soft answer turns away wrath. And, and, and she comes to him, and, and she bows before him. And she's, she hurried and got down from her donkey. And she fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She, he, she fell at his feet. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. So he, she calls him Lord. But then he's, she also starts using Lord as in Yahweh, the Lord God, and there's this, there's this Lord, 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 who is Lord here. But she doesn't come out and say it. She lets it just hang in the air and lets the Holy Spirit work in David's heart to bring him to the place that he needs to be. And then what does she do? She says, on me and me alone be the guilt? She's going to take the guilt of her lousy husband on herself when she wasn't even there and has got nothing to do with it, but she takes the guilt on herself. She takes the lead and say, hey, if you want to look at somebody, I, I, I bear this. I bear this for my husband. It sounds like Jesus is bearing our own sins, right? Bearing our sins for us. She's bearing the sins for her husband, and she's stepping out like Christ. And then she says, please let your servant speak to your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my, the Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for his name is, is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and I feel like reading, and folly is his game. Or, uh, But it, it really says folly is with him, but in truth, that is his game, and he is, he, that's all he plays at. Um, for I am your servant. So she comes before him, not only humble in posture, but humble in speech. I am your servant, and I uh, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving, uh, saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil, seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. So what does she do here? She is saying, the Lord has restrained you before she even knows the Lord has restrained him. She is counting on who to get the job done. Not her humility, not her humble words, but she is coming with a righteous posture that's given to her by the Lord, and she's hoping for a righteous response, and it's actually more than hope. Because her faith in God to bring a righteous response provides the place for her to say, your heart is changing here. Uh, you just don't know it yet. <laughs> it's kind of like what she's saying. And, and now, let this present... So she's like, I got this present here, the stuff you asked for, but it's a present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. So who's watching here? Who's watching how to handle conflict? 
Who is watching how to approach some, a brother in Christ who cannot see his, through his own blindness the, the thing that he is about to do? The next generation. They're always watching. And we need to think deeply about the righteousness that we are modeling. Is it mine? Is it just plain unrighteousness? Or is it God's? And so she, they come in and he, says, he receives the gift, but he also says in verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant. Takes it on again. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. She knows he's anointed. A sure house. And fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall not be bound in a bundle of living, a bundle of the, John read it better, um, living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from a hollow sling. Why the sling reference? She knows. That's how, that's how David took out Goliath. But David knows, and he said it when he did it, that, that it was God who had that victory. It is God who defined his victory with Goliath, and it is God who will define his victory with Nabal. In any other way, might look like victory, might feel like victory, but it isn't victory in God's eyes. So we, as we pursue justice, as we pursue a battle, we need to have the definition of what is victory in the first place outside of ourselves. Just like the righteousness that God gives us arrives from outside of ourselves so that ourselves aren't in the spotlight, but the giver of righteousness, the giver of forgiveness, the provider of peace is in the spotlight. And that's where we shine the brightest when we're shining the light on God. And so next, the, the hearing and the repenting. You'll see in verse 32 that David, uh, he, he receives the gift. And uh, he's like, okay, this is, this is deep. Because Abigail, blessed be the God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed is your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation by my own hands or my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me, the God of Israel has restrained me from hurting you unless you had hired, uh, hurried and come to meet me truly by morning. There would not have been left in Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. He, he's, he's giving peace upon Nabal's house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. David first recognizes that this is all happening because of God, so he worships. Praise God. 
Next, David hears. That's what it means when he says, I have obeyed your word. You know what's really cool? This word obey is Shema, which comes in the heart of Israel from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema, hear. Hear, Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. Worship, love, find your strength in God. Do it with your children in the morning. Do it with your children during the day and at night. Hear and do has everything to do with the next generation. And the same word pops up here. All the young men are around, and David listens to a, a woman of God, and he responds. And not, don't let it be lost on you. David is listening to a woman of God, and he is responding. And men, we need to model this to the next generation. We need to listen to the women of God around us. We need to hear things from their perspective, and we need to recognize that we are brothers and sisters in, in God, in Christ. We are children of God, working together for the kingdom of God. So let's hear the voice of everyone. This is absolutely critical. So he, he repents as well. And you might be wondering, how is it that David, of all people, of, and his mistakes even get worse after this, how is it that he's in the lineage of Jesus? Because his righteousness is not his own. And when he takes righteousness into his own hands, he repents. Over and over again, the record of Psalms shows us David's repentant heart. So the line of David is not based, or the line of Jesus, the lineage of Jesus is not based on human heroes who are totally awesome. It's based on people, men and women, who receive the righteousness of God, who model the righteousness of God, and when they fail to model the righteousness of God, they repent and they turn and they go back home to where they need to belong. They go back home to the truth that God is calling us to live. And for David, he turns and he goes back out into the wilderness and he does not proceed forward. So here we have this last thing, and that is the sovereign God enables victory over our battles. And from 20, 25, verse 36 through 43, we see a progression. God brings justice to Nabal. He dies. Within 10 days, he dies. And then the Lord preserves the righteousness, and David again worships God for his preservation. And then he marries Abigail. He calls her and says, hey, will you come and be my wife? And so the best marriage is, is when two people share the governor of God's righteousness, the voice of God's people, and the sovereign victor of every battle. Every battle we fight is an opportunity to show the next generation that victory. We also know that the last verse, like the first verse, is a downer. <laughs> David marries another woman, too. <laughs> and, and we can start to say, what? Uh, but it, every time we see this happen in Scripture, it doesn't turn out well. And it didn't turn out well for David either. And the next generation is watching our marriages. 
The next generation is looking at, for us to seize the opportunities that God puts in front of us, to look at those battles and allow them to be defined by God's righteousness and not our own. You know, my dad and I stopped and we tried to undo that governor because dad had done it before on, on the school buses. And he's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that sounds good, right? Uh, but isn't that just it? Isn't the next generation not only showing how to be governed by God's righteousness, but how to take the governor off? And, and fortunately, he couldn't figure out how to do it. And, and, and we stayed protected by that governor for the rest of the trip. We didn't like it, um, but we stayed within the speed limit. Where are you today? Where are you in the battles that you are fighting are you trying to detach the governor? What does your battle in the office place? What does your battle at home look like? Is it defined by God's righteousness or your own? In the voice, are you listening to the voices of people around you? Are they even being heard? Are, they even, are you even in a place where you can hear their voice? Are you close enough to brothers and sisters in Christ that, that they feel open, a sense of openness that you want to hear? And do you recognize God as a sovereign who wins every battle? And the most important battle of all is the battle over your sin and mine, over our unrighteousness by sending his son who in his perfect righteousness set aside what it meant to be God, endured the cross so that and despised his shame so that we might stand in the presence of God. Our battles belong to the Lord when righteousness from the Lord defines the victory that is the Lord's. Father God, we come before you and maybe there's some things that have come into our mind as we've been thinking about this, about the battle in, in our home, the battle in the workplace, the battle with a neighbor over this or that. Father, people drive me crazy sometimes, and, and, uh, and, and I see red. Father, help me to be repentant like David. Help me to turn my heart toward you. Align my heart with your heart. Father, align our hearts with your heart so that the next generation who is watching will know what it looks like to clean up our, a mess and turn our hearts in repentance to you. Not point to ourselves for the good that we do, but to you and by your spirit enabling us to walk as you are calling us to walk. We pray as we sing now that we would sing with all of our hearts that the battle is yours in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.